Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is Mike, aka also Mike, from the Mike, Mike, and Oscar podcast. How are you doing today, Mike? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mati. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited about this topic, and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about it, because your podcast is so great at covering everything Oscar-related. Oh, thank you. So, Mike One was not able to join us today, right? So, for this podcast, you're just going to be Mike. I'm assuming that's okay with you? I could finally be the only Mike. Okay, that's awesome. worth it to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's got bronchitis right now and he, he can't jump on. And I, we're going to have a delay in our uh, release schedule, unfortunately. So this is good timing. This works. Okay, awesome. So have you ever ran a marathon, Mike? I usually ask all my guests that the first time they're on. I was a sprinter. We, we kind of talked about it in the pre-show. Like you ran some uh, serious races uh, in college and whatnot. And I, uh, I you know, I, I sprinted through high school and I still work with track kids today, but I don't uh, I don't run the long distances competitively. You know, I'll run them to lose some weight, which I uh, I just lost 25 pounds. I got uh, I got into a shot putter's body for a while there in my early 30s. And <laughs> and as finally, you know, I, I got back to uh, back to my I don't know, I, I'd probably be a 400 runner now or something like that. This is all track coaching speak. But uh, I think I've watched you know, a hundred thousand movie marathons in terms of the time spent watching movies. So yeah, I don't know if that counts. I'm sure it doesn't. No, that definitely counts. I don't think we've only had like two or three actual marathoners on the podcast. Um, so you are in good company here for sure. What's your <laughs> most recent movie marathon? Well, we did the uh, Joker character study and mm. we watched all of the Batman movies essentially. And that, that was one hell of a study. But I mean, just this past weekend, I, I saw four of these Oscar movies. I'm, I'm always doing a movie marathon in one way or another, but I saw Honey Boy and Waves and, oh my God, I forget what else I say. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again. There's so much stuff out there that I got to catch up on because I'm, you know, I'm doing this on top of other things. And uh, it's just, it, it's a deluge at this moment uh, with, with Oscar stuff. Yeah. It always feels like there's something that I am behind on and mm -hmm. man, so stressful, but Welcome to another Decade Marathon episode. Uh, we're going to be looking at the best films of the 2010s. Today, we'll be running through our top five best picture nominated films of the last decade. So in case this is your first episode in the format, I'll explain how it's going to go. Mike and I will take turns counting down our top five films, starting at number five. And in the likely case of overlapping entries, we'll discuss the film the first time it appears on either of our lists. And I will say here, as I do at the top of all of these episodes, that these are personal subjective lists and that at least I have not seen every film that has been nominated for Best Picture in the last decade. So just keep that in mind. I don't know. Have you, when you were going through your list, have you yeah. seen every single one? I'm missing one. I've never seen a more. Uh, it was five, it was five years before I started. Uh, and I watched like the first five minutes of it. She was vacuuming the whole time and I shut it off. And I don't feel guilty about it in the least. <laughs> I have not gone back to it. I guess I probably should, though, because it's just the one outlier that I haven't seen. Yeah. Okay. We actually have a guest on that is very well versed. Um, but even so, these are personally subjective lists. So keep that in mind. And for spoilers, we're going to say that spoilers are fair game for any and all entries on the list. If there's a massive spoiler coming up, we will do our best to give you a fair warning, and I will also provide timestamps in the show notes for each film in the event that you want to skip that section to avoid spoilers. And lastly, we will be skipping our usual point two section to give us more time to discuss these films. So 
Before jumping in, I want to just start by clarifying the pool of eligible films. We talked about this, Mike, that specifically we'll be looking at films released since 2010 that have been nominated for Best Picture at the respective Academy Awards ceremony. So that is a total of 78 films, as well as a handful of ones that we considered probable Best Picture films for this year Mm -hmm. that we were allowed to consider if we wanted to. So, Mike, was this hard for you to whittle it down to from 78 all the way to five? First of all, this was a wonderful topic. I sunk my teeth into it immediately. I immediately opened a Google document and, and started hammering away on it. It <laughs> is you. a terrifying challenge, all, the, all that being said, because there's mm. so many really excellent films of the last decade, obviously. But in a strange way, I had like, you know, a tier of like 30 films and I, I had like two or three that I knew I wanted on my list. And then the other two or three I kept, you know, interchanging for the these last two weeks since we kind of, you know, nailed this one down. So this was brutal, brutal. I, I am ashamed of my list. I am proud <laughs> of it. I have so many conflicting emotions. Uh, I'm a ball of anxiety. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going to hold you to this for the rest of time. You know that, right? Like... Anytime you have an opinion on Oscars from now on, I'll be like, oh, well, yeah, you put number five. So I'm sure it's going out there. (laughs) I don't blame you in the least. (laughs) Yeah, this was also really hard for me. I think of the ones that I've done so far being comedies, superhero, uh, animated, and now Oscar nominated films, this one was easily the hardest for me. Hmm. So I started with the 78 films and then just wrote down all the ones that I was like, oh, I really like that. And I ended up with something, like you said, like 30 films. And then I I don't even know what my process was of whittling it down to five. Like you said, there was one or two that I knew for sure I wanted to be on here. But I was debating between choosing a top five that was like personal favorites mm-hmm. um, versus a top five that was kind of emblematic of the Oscars over the last decade. And in the end, I ended up with this like abomination of both. Hmm. where some of them are my favorite films that like nobody probably even remembers that they were Oscar films. And then there's some more classic Oscar films. So like you, I kind of hate my list um, <laughs> because of what's missing, but I also really love it. So let's jump straight into it, Mike. What is your number five film from the last decade? I'm probably most embarrassed about this one, but I just can't <laughs> help myself. I just finished a Tarantino rewatch this summer with uh, Mike One there on the Mike, Mike, and Oscar podcast. And we we saw this each four times a piece in theaters. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I just rewatched it last night. I have to do it. I, it's just a, t- it's a terrific film. And I think I'm going to remember this decade as, as the decade where this movie popped up. I mean, it's it's one of the coolest hangout movies ever. Mm-hmm. It's got a crazy experience factor to it. There are things like I despise in the film and that I despised early on. But it's like I think he is uh, antagonizing us in many ways. I mean, there's pairs of feet in this movie that antagonize us literally, I think. <laughs> There's a whole Bruce Lee controversy, which I think he wanted to leave in there just to keep his, you know, movie in the news and the trades there for a while. And I totally disagree with Mike One on on that one. Uh, you can, you know, listen where we, we land on that. But I think he could have totally avoided it. Uh, but I, ca- I can't help myself. I'm in love with this movie. I think uh, I think that it's going to be one that we remember. So I'm on the record as a person who is not the biggest Tarantino fan. Mm hmm. And um, because of that, I went into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with pretty low expectations. And I also really love this movie. Um, I had a 
podcast episode on it with uh, two of the guys from Out of Our Element. It's a uh, film review website, and they were both a little colder on it and mm. just didn't think it was up to you know snuff with the rest of Tarantino's work. But I really enjoyed this one. Where do you think this ranks among Tarantino's work? I think it's his most mature work. You know, I mm-hmm. think he is being self-reflexive and he's not always self-reflexive. I mean, he'll be reflexive on the whole genre, whatever genre he's making that movie about at the particular time. I think this movie it has a historical lens to it. And you can, I mean, you could teach a whole college course on the, the, the history being referenced here. I mean, if you think about the, you know, I mean, I'm not going to try and spoil it, but if you think about the central event or the ending event of this movie, it's the night the 60s died, right? I mean, that whole wave of Americana that was happening, and this was what killed it or did it. I mean, you, you are asking yourself the question watching this movie, how is this thing going to shake out? Because you know what he's done at the end of his other films. I just thought it was it was one of the more fascinating movie questions, story problems, whatever you want to call it, in, in recent years. I mean, that drives your first watch. But then when you rewatch the thing, it is just so dense. It's so dense with laughs. Mm-hmm. It's so dense with all the production values, all the cinematic goods. I mean, I, I can watch this movie probably on loop. It's one of the I can do a marathon of just this movie. <laughs> and I just bought it. So I'm, I'm probably going to over the next few weeks. I have to. And I, I and the big thing is, and one of the criteria I had, I keep wanting to show this movie to other people. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really uh, that's a signifier that it's that's going to stay uh, in my brain as, as something, you know, pretty awesome. Have you shown it to anybody in your personal life that has said, wow, I really don't like this? Because there was a pretty big, uh, you know, not huge critical divide but there was people on both sides i felt like that really loved this movie and then were pretty turned off by it a few friends a few brothers so far i uh i haven't shown it to my dad yet i like to show uh, you know the occasional movie to my father and see how he thinks you know what mm-hmm. he thinks of it uh he can go either way on it because he, he's one of those movie fans that's like this is the worst thing I, i've ever seen or that's the best movie i've ever seen it's it, nowhere in between it's one or the mm-hmm. other so he could totally have that reaction to it. But so far, no. I, everybody's loved it. Awesome. Great. Yeah. I I uh, had a conversation about this with my dad because he was grew up in LA in the 60s. Mm. So it was really cool to get his uh, kind of insight on some of the you know things that I, I don't know anything about 60s Hollywood. But just the film in general is, I think, fantastic. And I think it's a great addition to this list. So how about you, though? I mean, have you shown people that have been like, eh, I know you talk to people on the pod, but uh, any friends, any friends just like, you know, have that coffee shop argument with you? No. So I have I saw it once um, in theaters and with my friend and we both really liked it. Mm. So um, I haven't had a chance to check it out again. I definitely want to. And I think I probably will before the Oscars turn around because it is, you're right, it's, it's just a film that asks to be rewatched. But yeah, nobody nobody that I've talked to that has seen it has said that they've disliked it, at least in my personal life. Who do you think gives a better performance? Uh, like, where do you think the Oscars lie, are going to lie for the performances? I think the Oscars going to lie with Brad Pitt if, if they win an act, acting Oscar. But uh, my opinion, and I know Mike one agrees with me, I mean, we love Leonardo DiCaprio's performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the more vulnerable in a long time. He's playing such an insecure character who's dealing with his demons and he's he, they're all on his sleeve. I mean, that scene, I mean, the soliloquies with him, I mean, when he's talking to himself in the mirror, my goodness gracious. I mean, if he hadn't won for The Revenant... He he would probably be in the driver's seat right now. I guess there's yeah. a pun in there. Oh, my God. But, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I love his performance most of all, but I, you know, the whole cast is terrific. Yeah, for sure. I really love his um, like stutter that he has, and mm-hmm. it's not really explained, but you can kind of tell that it's either due to alcoholism or something where he's just kind of losing his uh, sais quoi. I don't know. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> That's next level, though. I mean, it's got to be so hard to do and so yeah. hard to maintain. I, I think he's uh, he's one of our best. And it was like the situation we had a couple years back where Daniel Day-Lewis was just putting out a great performance every time. I mean, Leo is getting to that level. Where it's just yeah. like, all right, you can't give him every Oscar because we don't do that. We know we know this much by now, but I mean, he's probably given one of the top three performances every year, and I thought I think he gives one here. So your number five was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is from this year, mm-hmm. and we are sure that is it is going to be nominated for Best Picture. Yes. So no qualms there. Yes, I I, I can say that much confidently. I I don't know if it's going to win yet. I gotta you know that's why I'm trying to you know you know pick your brain for information because I'm trying to pick everybody's brain as an Oscars pundit and, uh, and all, yeah. the, all the film <laughs> Twitter. So got to get my intel somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good call. So my number five is um, it's the le- it's out of left field. Uh, I don't know totally how I feel about putting this film on my list, but my number five film is Life of Pi. Oh, good. From 2012. So this is directed by Ang Lee, and um, this is the reason I put this film on here is because it's a very particular type of Oscar film, in my opinion. It's one from a prolific director who is trying something ambitious and new, as Ang Lee seems to be doing for the last 10 years, Um, and it doesn't quite work. You know, there's some wonky things going on here and there, but it still gets tons of nominations. This one was nominated for 11 Oscars. Um, it won for best director, best cinematographer, best score, and best visual effects. And I think it was the most wins of the night on that year. Do you well, know? As a technical achievement, it was worthy of those wins. I mean, the, yeah. the VFX at the time were outstanding. It reminded me of how, I, I don't think it's going to get nominated this year, but Alita Battle Angel this year, you can't tell what's real and what is uh, you know, computer animated. It, it's really tremendous. And then you have the color palette, then you and you're right, the cinematography and that beautiful landscape. My goodness, that, that movie works as both a spectacle and a popcorn film, and it works as an art film. And you're you're right about the ambitious narrative. My goodness, I, I keep telling myself it's been on my audible queue forever because I love reading the these books of the movies after the I watch the movies. Mm-hmm. I gotta buy that one really soon. That's a that's a hell of a story. 
Yeah, so I uh, read part of this book before seeing the movie, actually, because my dad bought me this book when I was really young. And at the time, it was a dense book for like a 10-year-old or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I started reading it a whole bunch of times, but I never even got to the part where Pi was on the boat. So I always only got to when he's talking about living in the zoo and everything. But I really, really like this film. I think you know, it's a great story. It has an amazing central performance. And then, like you said, the CGI tiger stuff works really well. And I like that Ang Lee just goes for it. Ang Lee goes for it, uh, like you said it before, with every one of his movies. I mean, he is as ambitious a filmmaker as it gets. And he does like uh, Zemeckis, right? He does a, mm -hmm. a technically ambitious film. And then he does something like Brokeback Mountain. And then he comes back and he, he just did Gemini Man. I think... Uh, I think I'd like to see him do like a more hardcore, you know, Oscars, even an Oscars grabby film, but a, a hardcore drama again before going back to the technical achievement. Cause I know he didn't, it didn't work for him with uh, Gemini man, but even Hulk, I mean, there's a lot to love about with Hulk, even though that movie kind of fails, but this was, this was a technical achievement and a, and a, you know, paramount one for him. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I really like the central message of the film. And I think this was came around the time when I was first starting to think about films in a way that was a little more critical. And the first time I saw it, uh, I just kind of accepted it. You know, like like I said, it's a very um, cinematically pleasing movie. So it's one that you can just watch as a popcorn film if you want to. But then uh, my friend afterwards told me that he had heard from some article or something that this film will make you believe in God. <laughs> I don't know. Have, have you heard that before with this film? It'll make me believe in reincarnation, perhaps. I don't know, <laughs> you know, based on the movie, but yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is a life affirming movie. There's no question. I mean, the the basis for it is like one of those philosophical parables that you study in right. school, right? I mean, these people stuck on a boat. You know, I mean, these different personalities on there. I mean, it's totally uh, a fable and a, and, a, and a morality tale in that regard. So I, that makes sense. And then there's also the thing at the end where when he's eventually rescued by, you know, some investigators, investigators that are looking at the happenings of the, the ship crash and everything. And they, he tells him this story that we just spent, you know, two hours watching. And there's some pretty mystical and fantastical things that are happening. They don't believe him. And so he comes up with this other story that is much more banal. And, you know, instead of a tiger, it's a human being and. Um, all this stuff that is much more believable. And he's telling all these stories to the journalist and the journalist says, which do you prefer? Or I'm sorry, Pi says, which do you prefer? And the mm. journalist says, I like the one with the tiger. And that ultimately to me is saying that the film is about faith and how it doesn't necessarily matter what the actual truth is because the end result is the same. And I had never thought about religion like that. So I really appreciated that this film kind of opened that kind of uh, reflection for me. Totally, totally makes sense. And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful sen sentiment to end the film. And I love when movies do that at the end and they mm -hmm. recontextualize the entire story. I'm not going to spoil, you know, a couple movies that did that this year, but there are a couple quote unquote Oscar contending films uh, that have done that. And, and certainly in years past from a guy we're going to discuss later on, David Fincher, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's really mm -hmm. awesome when you, you know, you pull that magic trick on your audience and Ang Lee. He's, he's one of the best. Yeah. So Life of Pi is my number five. Mike, what's your number four film? My number four is The Favorite. I know I'm recency biased to the hilt right now, but The Favorite <laughs> was my obsession last year. 
I saw it t- only twice in theaters because right when it was kind of starting its wide release run, I'm in Connecticut here, so I, I can't necessarily always go to the city and see the uh, the, the limited runs. But when, once it started that run, Movie Pass was dying. And I mm-hmm. couldn't go like every night or every other night and just, you know, see it four or five times like I like to do. So I saw it only twice in theaters, really liked it, even though it's an intense movie. But then when it comes on VOD, I buy it. I watch it like three times in two days or whatever I did. Wow. And then, you know, I've, I've seen it a couple more times since. So I think I've seen it like eight or nine times now. The performances to me are next level. Uh, it yeah. was the it was just something that blew me away with with what these three women were able to do. You also have Nicholas Holt, but I mean the 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 three central women in this film just are doing like ten things at once. You know, with with nuance and, and they're going loud with the performance, but they're also you know playing all the subtext. And then I think that's you know a testament to the screenplay. This was my best screenplay at the Mike Mike and Oscars last year for that reason. I mean I knew uh, and I, I knew Spike was going to win, and I was happy that Spike won for Black Klansman. But he he's had better scripts in the past. Uh, th- this movie, if you're a history buff, if you like your ghost, if you like to be shocked and appalled and delighted all in one movie, you know th- th- this is the movie. It's an A grade for me. I'm going to keep coming back to it. So this was another one that uh, I saw, and at when I went into it, I was like, I've heard all the hype about this. There is no way I'm going to like this as much as, you know, um, Joe Schmo Critic, <laughs> and I was blown away by it. This is not a film that I would say is particularly, um, like, appealing to my main interests. I'm not a huge period piece fan, and I haven't loved many of Yorgos Lanthimos' other things. Like, I wasn't a huge fan of The Lobster, but something about this film just worked. And I think you're pointing out the two main things that absolutely worked for me, which was the performances and the script. And I think this is so funny. I almost included this in my top five comedies Hmm. when I was talking about this, just because... This film had me laughing basically the whole time. And it's almost like it's not even trying to make you laugh. Like it just lets the characters do their thing. It's a hard edged comedy. I mean, these these laughs that they get you to, you know, guffaw with. I mean, they're evil in a way. Like you're laughing at evil stuff. It's like a satire. <laughs> you know, it's like an American psycho level satire. It's also prophetic. I mean, if you think about the themes of this story and how it's talking about our political landscape right now. I mean, what Mm. the rabbits represent, all that stuff. I mean, we, we did a deep dive in in it when we reviewed it last year, this movie, I I literally, I get obsessed with a movie every year. This was my obsession last year. And, uh, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood's probably, probably it for me this year, but (laughs) yeah, I, I just, my top five is filled with obsession type movies. That's the way I get. I like watching movies like 10 times when I was a little kid. I used to play the same movie over and over and over again. So I was worried today that my list would seem like a film bro, especially with like Tarantino and some of these others that are coming up. But I looked up what film bro means because I'd never even heard, you know, I just heard the term used, you know, in a, in a bad way before. And they're like, well, film bros, you know, only have a surface level understanding. So I don't have that. Thank God. So if even if it's yes. a film bro <laughs> list, I have studied the shit out of these movies. <laughs> Listen to our 390 episodes of Mike, Mike and Oscar <laughs> as proof. <laughs> I definitely don't think that this uh, is a film bro list right. lo- looking at, at the ones. So I, 
I'm I'm pretty happy with the amount like the films that you have on this. So I gave that argument during my least film bro movie though. So that's just for the folks out there. <laughs> yeah, probably de- three okay. film bro movies coming up. That's true. That's true. Um, before we get to those though, uh, did you see the wife? Yes, Glenn Close. Okay. Um, I did not see the wife. I don't know anybody who saw the wife. Were you rooting for Glenn Close for to take the win over Olivia Coleman? Because I was so hoping that Olivia Coleman would win that. So Glenn Close is from Connecticut. We reviewed ah. one of her movies. I think it was Fatal Attraction in one of the first few pods. And we did a whole bio. That's when we were doing bios in our episodes. So we came to love Glenn Close, both Mike and I. And we've been shouting her out on the podcast ever since. It would be a dream to talk to her on the pod. I think that uh, I think that we were both rooting for her. We couldn't help it, but I mm-hmm. rated Olivia Coleman higher than her at the Mike, Mike and Oscars, our own award show there. So I, I figured that she was going to win, but Coleman was better, uh, to be honest with you, even though they're both tremendous. They both would win this year easily. I mean, based on, on the, you know, no insult to who we have this year, but it's not close. Yeah. It's, it's a week. Hey, that was a good, good pun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't an intentional pun. Um, so then, have you seen Olivia Coleman on The Crown? I have not yet. I am doing the world's slowest rewatch or slowest watch, binge watch of The Crown. I think I'm okay. on episode six of the first season. I watch, <laughs> <laughs> I watch one every like four months, and I love it. It's just one of those shows that it's like so dense. All right, I'm good with The Crown for another four months or something. I, and at first, it was just happening by accident. <laughs> Now I just got so much Oscar stuff to do. It's impossible to watch a lot of TV as much as I'd like. But I, I do. I want to watch The Crown. I want to jump ahead and watch the Olivia Coleman Crown. But I like Claire Foy as well. I just I just got to binge it. What, what's wrong with me? Are, are, you, are you loving it? <laughs> I, I am. Yeah. Olivia Coleman is great. But this role of hers in The Favorite is so defining um, in a way <laughs> that it makes it a little difficult for me to take her seriously as Queen Elizabeth. So you have PTSD um, so, flashbacks to her screaming in the hallways. Yeah, or like there. being dragged on the floor. And I mean, she's she's a glorified toddler in The Favorite, and it's yeah. hilarious. So it's uh, pretty hard to see her in basically the same outfit and playing a completely different character. But um, she's very good in it. So I would I would definitely recommend binging through it. She's tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> so the favorite was your number four. My fourth one is Black Swan. Oh, yes. 2010. That was on my list a hundred times and I took it off a hundred and one times. I feel ashamed. Ah, Great job. Thank you. So, um, yeah, this film, I did not actually see this film until, you know, maybe 2016. I was pretty young uh, in 2010 and I was still in that mindset where I was like, the Oscars are bullshit. They don't give the awards to just Inception. It's the only movie I've seen. So why isn't Inception winning everything? You know, um, but I remember watching this with my friend over the summer and just being absolutely blown away by it. Mm. I think this is in the category of movies that is incredible, but I might never watch it ever again. <laughs> it, it is one of those. That's a tough rewatch, but it's still worthwhile. Like I would say this is one of those every five years. It's a must watch because you just, you know, experience it all again. But it's it's a tough like annual. I would agree. Yeah, so I will uh, hit you up again in 2021 when I am up for my uh, fifth fifth year rewatch. Yes, of this. yes, that's the recommendation. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Natalie Portman, I think, just steals the show in this. It is 
in for my in my opinion 100% about her performance I, that does sell you know some of the other things that are fantastic about this movie short but i can't see how you talk about this movie and not just praise natalie portman in it especially given that this was 5 years after revenge of the sith which i just rewatched and natalie portman is not great in that yeah. um it is you know it's not her fault it is the script's fault but i was just blown away by everything that she does in here. And it's one of those films that is just so unnerving and disturbing. And Darren Aronofsky just does an amazing job at building that tension throughout the entire runtime. So she gave what I considered one of the best horror movie performances in a long time, because I do consider this uh, a horror adjacent property for sure. And Mike and I, yeah. we've been screaming for Tony Collette to get, you know, acknowledged from Hereditary. And, and, and two years ago on the pod this year, we've been screaming about Lupita Nyong'o to get recognized for mm -hmm. us because it, it's somewhat rare to get these just, you know, tour de force, bull you over, crush you horror movie lead performances. And you're absolutely right. She, this is this is her vehicle through and through. And, and, you know, Aronofsky is, is terrific. But if he ever does another horror, like Mother was terrifying as well. If, when he does horror, Jesus Christ, I'm afraid because this movie got to me. It got under your skin, literally, figuratively, yep. on yep. the screen, <laughs> off the screen. Terrifying stuff, but, but awesome. Yeah, the scene where Natalie Portman peels the skin back from mm. her fingernails mm. is probably the single most vivid image from a film that I have just lodged in my brain and anytime there is a piece of skin that's kind of hanging from my fingernail or anything in film that is even remotely similar to some type of skin slash finger body horror my brain just screams black swan black swan like yeah. that is yeah oh, the, the implications are, are even worse than the you know just the image in your brain but if you, we we shut the video off on our skype but I, i've been just shuddering for the last 10 minutes i've been like my shoulders have been going yeah. all over the place that's ugh, terrifying yeah i'm like i'm hunched up and uh <laughs> yeah it's ugh, you just want to like get out of your own skin almost it's um yeah so I would definitely, despite all that, if you haven't seen it, definitely recommend watching Black Swan once. Watched it with watch it with a loved one or somebody that you can hold on to. <laughs> um, what uh, Mike is your number three film? So my number three, and I just had to level with myself. I love this movie. I don't care that it makes me seem like a film bro. I don't care. My number three is Moneyball. There are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. That's a dollar, man. What? Welcome to Oakland. I need more money. We're not New York. Fine players with the money that we do have. I like Perez. Not an ugly girlfriend. Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. You guys are talking the same old nonsense. Like we're looking for Fabio. We got to think differently. Who's Fabio? Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. First job in baseball? It's my first job anywhere. We're going to shake things up. Why don't you walk me through the board? I believe there's a championship team that we could afford because everyone else undervalues them, like an island of misfit toys. We want you at first base. I've only ever played catcher. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, watch. It's incredibly hard. He can't throw. So what can he do? Do you want me to speak? We're not pointing you yet. He gets on base. We are card counters. 
at the blackjack table. We're going to turn the odds on the casino. I'm heading in. Text me to play by play. Wait, what? I don't watch the games. I am a sports guy. Always have been. We we had all that track stuff before, earlier. This is the movie I've rewatched the most. I've probably seen it, you know, 15 times. I tried to make it a going to sleep movie. And if you're single and you're, or your significant other likes movies as lullabies, like I can't go to sleep without something on a podcast, a movie, something for, for whatever reason, I'm crazy. I, I had <laughs> this as a going to sleep movie for a while. It's the worst going to sleep movie because I kept staying up and watching the whole thing. Even if it like worked one night, by the end of the week, I would be, you know, I would be watching the movie twice in that week. So I've, to- I've totally gotten rid of it as a going to sleep movie. I recommend Goodwill Hunting, Capote, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Those are much better going to sleep movies. Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs on HBO is another one. Like those are all great movies too, but you can, hmm. you can, I'll be conked out. But I, I look, I can't change who I am. Uh, I'm one of the weirder breeds of like, I love sports and I love movies. I'm a jock. I'm a nerd. I'm all those things. This to me, this is my favorite sports movie. I don't know if it's the best. That was going to be one of my questions. Yeah, I, I would call it my best. I mean, if I, I, we did a big sports movie, you know, ranking Mike and I, but we never used that episode because we ranked all the basketball movies, and he got game is my probably my favorite basketball movie over Hoosiers. I don't get the Hoosiers stuff. He got game from Spike. <laughs> That's my favorite. A League of Their Own is probably my, you know, my favorite, you know, other baseball movie there. But uh, this is top three Mount Rushmore sports movies, no question. If it makes you feel any better, this one just missed my list. It was one of the ones that got down to maybe like when I had seven mm. and I was debating what to take off. And the probably the only reason I took this one off is because I haven't seen it in a long time. So I um, I didn't have much that I could say about it other than from what I remember, it's just fantastic. And the thing that I like the most about it is that even if you don't know baseball, which um, I mean, I played baseball, but I don't avidly follow it. And Mm. the stats go right over my head. This film, if it doesn't do a good job at making you know what's going on, you very much feel like you know what's going on and you know why Brad Pitt's character is good at what he does. And I think that is an incredible achievement just from a script level to have a film that's both entertaining and informative in a way that isn't super, you know, like exposition-y. And I recommend the book too. I mean, by Michael Lewis. I mean, he's one of my favorite writers. Uh, It's a tremendous book. It's one of those books. I mean, he wrote the big short. He's written a bunch of uh, The the Blind Side. He's written a bunch that have become big hit movies. And uh, he, uh, it's really like a collection of, you know, different topics that he, he writes these like one chapter could be its own thing. But, uh, I mean, in the movie, you have this season that plays together so well. I mean, a, a great sports movie is always about one season, right? Yeah. About one journey, a sports fleece, like a sports journey, right? So, I mean, you get the goosebump moments in this movie like like none other. I mean, when there's a home run hit at the end of that film, uh, every time it gets me. Every single time I'm tearing <laughs> up. I got the whole goosebumps all along my neck. I'm a very physical, you know, reactor to things like we just said and established with the Black Swan little thing we went through there. But there's a couple home runs in this movie uh, that just blow you away. And I love it. I'm a Yankees fan and I love it. So that says <laughs> a lot right there. You you gotta, you're getting me so hyped for this movie <laughs> and I do not have time to watch this. I have to watch Marriage Story and Irishman and... 
but I might just blow it off and watch Moneyball this weekend instead. Cause That's so good. Yeah, you're just you're just bringing it all back. I was listening to a podcast. I believe it is the um, best picture podcast from the Ringer Network, where they argued that this was Brad Pitt's best performance. Would you agree with that? That's tough because he's been really great in a mm-hmm. lot of stuff. I mean, he was tremendous in Ad Astra this year. I mean, Mike and I didn't love Ad Astra, but uh, he was phenomenal in that. I mean, he, I, t- I love his over-the-top performance in, uh, in Inglorious Bastards. It's probably my favorite <laughs> movie of his. Uh, I'm just looking through his filmography. I mean, uh, the, the performance, you know, pound for pound in 12 Monkeys is pretty great. That That's hard to reckon with there. It might be. It might, I mean, it's definitely his most mature performance, I would say. It's it, a very quiet performance. Yes. Uh, I love him in Burn After Reading, too, though. Oh, geez. The okay. Assassination of Jesse James. That's a whole nother podcast, my friend. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. So Mike's number three is Moneyball, and that is from 2011. Mm-hmm. So my number three is a film that you mentioned very briefly, um, Black Klansman from 2018. Nice. So... What? How do I talk about this movie? Um, this film is one that I think should have won Best Picture last year. I don't want to get into a whole fiasco of whatever <laughs> fucked up award season was that was last year. But I think this film is fantastic. I think it is well written. It is well directed. It is very well shot. And it is hilarious. You know, it's centered around John David Washington and Adam Driver, who kind of are these two cops that infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, John David Washington, of course, being uh, the only black cop in the Colorado in the Colorado Police Department at the time. And I think this film is just really good at being a byproduct of films in the Trump era. I Mm. think it has a lot to say. I think like Spike Lee often is, it is incredibly unsubtle. You know, the ending takes anything that can be remotely considered subtext and then just very much makes it the text of the film. And on first watch, that actually kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't um, I didn't love that. But now with reflection and seeing it a time or two more, you know, nothing has gotten better. If anything, it's gotten worse. And I think that that making that subtext text is actually really powerful and really effective and showing that. This film clearly has something to say about, look how fucked up everything was back then. Look at how fucked up it still is today. So it's a really brutally raw film, and I really like it for that reason. But also, this film just does not forget to be ridiculously entertaining. So it is funny. I think Driver and Washington, they have a lot of wit and smarminess to them that is very infectious. And um, just everything about this film works for me. So I love how Spike humanizes you know, all of the characters in that film. And I, it's insane to think that you could, right? I mean, when we yes. look at the Klansmen, when, when we look at people like Paul Walter Hauser's role, role in that, I, it's impossible to actually think as these, of these people as, as real human beings. And yet, Paul Walter Hauser is charming. He's funny. He's goofy. I mean, you, it, there's no wonder he's going to be in award seasons to come. That's uh, He's a contender in this award season. And he's, yeah. he's almost playing against type with Richard Jewell. I mean, if you consider all the implications of those real-life personas involved. I, I love Spike Lee movies. He's, he's like a Mount Rushmore in terms of filmmakers that have meant the most to me. I went to college in New York. I've watched his whole filmography. I mean, he, he is the man. I happen to love some of his other movies more. But this, to me, was like a tier one film last year. 
And I get yeah. so frustrated with best pictures of the last two years since we've been covering it. Because to me, clearly, like a tier two or a tier three film wins when you have this group of films that are just so obviously the best of the bunch. But somehow with the voting, you you, you pick a compromised candidate. It drives Mike and I insane. That's a great pick, Black Klansman. Yeah, so far we haven't had a single film that has won the best picture uh, on our list. No, so. that's why I podcast about it in many ways. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah, I don't. I also don't have any in coming up. No, but for Black Klansman, uh, the one thing I want to give a special shout out to is one of the um, actors who plays the white supremacist. It's uh, Jasper. Bakkonen. He's yeah. a Finnish actor, so we don't get a lot of Finnish actors, and I am Finnish, so I love um, seeing a Finnish actor every time he's on screen, and this guy just looks so Finnish that uh, before I even knew who the guy was, and before the credits even rolled, I was like, that guy's Finnish for sure, hmm. and I think he does a great job. He is the um, kind of the one that's most suspicious, I think, of Adam Driver's character. I right. can't remember his name, but... Good actor, and I always like primary antagonist. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Scary, he's scary, and his wife is even scarier. No, question. oh yeah, oh man, and oh geez, just that that scene when they're in bed and they're talking about like they're kind of making these horrible things like a fantasy that you know you you a normal couple in a movie might be like oh I can't wait for us to you know, have a beautiful house in the suburb and have these amazing kids. And there's this like wishfulness in the way that they're talking about these horrible things. It's just, it's, um, it's funny in this kind of perverted way, but it's also a really bleak in another way. So no really like black Klansmen. And I was really glad that, um, Spike Lee got the, uh, screenplay. Award yeah. For original this. screenplay, uh, adapted screenplay actually, excuse me. Yeah. Adapted screenplay. I did think also John David Washington was very much snubbed for best actor for this. I thought he did a fantastic job, and I would have liked to seen him get a get a nomination. Agreed. There. Willem Dafoe, I love him, and he harks the shit out of The Lighthouse this year. He's so good in it. I hope he gets nominated for that. I did not want to see him uh, in uh, At Eternity's Gate. And I think I misquoted before the screenplay categories. I always get those confused. Green Book won over the favorite. Black Klansman won Adapted. That's right. Yikes. Oh, right. Yeah. What a difference Ugh. a year makes. It's already out of my brain. I'm terrible with trivia, by the way. So you're, I'm always on IMDb. It's just, you get older, pal. I mean, I'm in my <laughs> mid-30s. I know you're young, younger. Get older. And if you've seen this many movies, it just it goes goes away. I, I am jealous by the amount of movies that you've seen. It's, uh, it is impressive. What is your number two film? My number three was, of course, Black Klansman. What's your number two film? So this is another obsession, and this was two years ago. Again, I, I've really been studying things the last three years since we started the podcast, uh, you know, since we tried to, you know, just start to go pro with this. Phantom mm -hmm. Thread. Phantom Thread is my number two. I never thought in a million years I would love this movie. Like, I'm not into fashion. I dre dress like a schlub. I don't have <laughs> much of a fashion sense uh, at, at all. And yet... Here is the guy who just played the uh, the oil man, who just played Lincoln, who just played you know the 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 head you know gang leader of New York, right? And Daniel Day Lewis, he's playing this eccentric character that is just so bizarre and so different from all of his other you know filmography. He's almost like in uh, in the Prestige, right? Christian Bale. He mm -hmm. talks about you know playing a role as a mag magician like you how you carry yourself is is really the trick on people 
because who you really are, who you're hiding, you know, that's that's what they don't know. And that enables you to, you know, pull off the trick. That's mm-hmm. what that's Daniel Day Lewis. I mean, he is just on the award stage every year. And he's just making us think he's that much more brilliant because he goes on the award stage and he's like Michael Stipe from the 1990s. And he's a musician from then. And then he plays all these, you know, batshit roles. But I I love this movie. I thought it was one of the, you know, more intense movies about like a relationship I've ever seen. You know, I know I've never had a relationship get to this crazy level of crazy. (laughs) I'd hope so. I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, I can gush about this movie for days. Uh, Vicky Crepes, Leslie Manville. Uh, I thought the acting was next level. I, I thought Daniel Day-Lewis wasn't considered because he'd won twice or twice before, and he's been nominated a million times. To me, he was you know head and shoulders better than Gary Oldman, in my opinion, whose jowls did not move. And that was a makeup problem, and it also won makeup. So I have a lot of issues with the Oscars, if you if you haven't noticed that much yet. <laughs> I think I think you can't talk about it as much as you do without you know having some strong opinions like i i love it <laughs> we develop them now this is not a you know not a place where we're just laid back and have really soft opinions and roll with the punches no mike mike and oscar were insane <laughs> no it's great i have not seen phantom thread oh do it immediately yes okay do yeah it. so i think man i i also don't want to like out myself i have only seen one pta film Oh, you're in for a treat because even if you don't like him, it's one of those filmmakers like uh, Yorgos, not to that extent, that he's really antagonistic and he does get under your skin. So if you Mm -hmm. like something like Black Swan, I mean, you get that. I mean, the master is like a psychological cluster, you know what? I mean, it's you will go bonkers if you watch that movie too many times. This one's a little more sane, I would say. But I mean, a beautiful, I mean, cinematography, I mean, the dresses, I never thought I would like dresses. I never thought I would <laughs> care about fashion. It's gorgeous. Just mind eye popping stuff. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the food goods, by the way, I'm a big proponent of food porn in my movies. Great uh, food porn in this movie. I, I can't get over it. I mean, they're in England, they're in Europe. I never thought they had, you know, were known for great breakfasts over there. Great food in this movie. It's like a whole episode of uh, a regal diners, drive-ins and dives you know, right there. Again, you, again, you could tell I've been on a diet recently because I'm just, you know, pining for a good meal at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only PTA film that I've seen is Punch Drunk Love. And that was because it was on Netflix and, you know, it's like 90 minutes. So it's not something like There Will Be Blood where you need a full three hours to digest. But yeah, PTA filmography is like my main blemish i think i mean i I obviously have a ton of blemishes but that is the one that like consistently is brought up in um kind of indie film critics and everything like that that is still not super indie and man i i just i just need like a week maybe this christmas where i'm i'll just watch all the pta films so i will put phantom thread on my list you like bennett miller and uh you like spike lee and you like darren aronofsky I would say Paul Thomas Anderson is some amalgamation of those three guys for sure. And David Fincher, if you like David Fincher, he's <laughs> yeah, kind of one him. of, he's one of those. I mean, he's going to give you uh, a serious film every time. He's going to give you a dense film every time. And I mean, the, you know, the filmmaking prowess is just, uh, my goodness. I mean, the editing, you're going to get a fully realized movie, even if you don't love the story and you have some knee jerk reactions to the story, you're going to get your money's worth just in cinematic goods. I mean, the film school nerds like me, just go, go gaga over that stuff. I mean, it, you get that here. Awesome. So Mike, your number two is the Phantom Thread, and that is from 2017. Yeah. 
So my number two is a film that I just had to put on the list, and this is the one that I was alluding to that is just not really an Oscar film. This is The Martian from 2015. Oh, good. I love that. So, yeah, this, uh, I mean, it was nominated for seven Oscars. It did not win any of them, and it's not the most traditional Oscar film, but I think that this is just a fantastic, well-made, classic sci-fi film. Agree. It is just enjoyable. You are having fun the entire time. And I don't know. I just love it so much. I love Matt Damon. He's a Boston boy, so he's got that going for him. He has this irresistible pull to him that just makes you want to root for him. It's, I don't know what it is, um, but in this role specifically, he's got that sprinkles of Will Hunting because he's this kind of sassy smartass. And then surrounding him, even though this is a castaway film, more or less, you know, he's stranded alone on Mars, Hmm. there is just a great supporting cast. I think everybody does a great job. I know a lot of people do not like what uh, Donald Glover did, and <laughs> I'm I'm on the camp where I you know I could take it or leave it. I think I really like him, and he was clearly doing his weird community thing, so it was fine with me. Um, but I thought that Jeff Daniels was fantastic as the head of NASA here. I, I love that movie. Uh, it was you know on the edge of my first tier of movies of the decade. I only had seven or eight in that first tier. It just kept, you know, I almost put it in my list. It's the honorable mention for sure that we'll get to in a second. But I, I I love the movie as like just one big science experiment and talk about if you're, if you're a science uh, egghead, like, like I I like to be sometimes I I think, (laughs) uh, I I think it's an amazing film an amazing story. And the writer is so knowledgeable and and so many people have talked about it as being so realistic. And then you have this charismatic character that Matt Damon plays. I mean, it's him in his Tom Hanks castaway mode. Right. And Mm -hmm. you're right. You got Jeff Daniels. You got a full, you know, cast that they cut away to so that he doesn't have to get, you know, too bogged down in, in the Damon. But you have. Uh, just uh, one of the more visually stunning movies uh, of not only that year, but ever since. I, I quibble or I quabble, as Mike and I like to say, with <laughs> one little thing at the end. Like, I th- there's like a, a feat of strength that he somehow, you know, does something in space. I'm like, that can't happen, can it? I Are don't you know. Are talking about the uh, Iron Man one? It, it might have. It, it was like one reach or something. I mean, I'm sure gravity, you know, screwed up the uh, real okay, yeah. physics of it a hundred times more. But I remember at the time reading something and I was like, I can't give it an A because that <laughs> and I'm such an ass. But I think uh, I think that's a great choice. It's it's one of those movies, too, that, again, it works as a popcorn film. I mean, the whole family yeah. should see it. It should make hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, why hasn't it, you know, or did. But why, you know, don't we get more movies like that all the time? I mean, it's tremendous, tremendous film. Yeah. And the thing that really pushed me over the edge with this film, this one is among my top favorite films of all times, I would say, is because it is so just optimistic and positive about mm. the good in humanity. And it has positive things to say about space travel and the future of scientific achievement. And there are just so many movies like this that would take a dour and miserable approach to the dangers of tech and terrors of deep space. And, oh, isn't it scary to be stranded on Mars? And isn't it depressing? And we're all doomed and people suck. But um, this one is just- Astra, yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it's not that doom and gloom either. But yeah, yeah. that one's one's hopeful at the end a little bit too. But um, I don't know. This one is it's just so absolutely refreshing to see a castaway film that is just optimistic and where the world comes together to save Mark Watney. And because, you know, that's what humanity should do. And maybe that's a little um, 
I don't know, optimistic or overly, I don't know, light, but that is the best that humanity has to offer. And Mm. um, I really liked seeing that in a sci-fi movie that is normally so depressing and everything like that. So as the scientist in me just really loved this one. And I immediately read the book and gifted it to my dad for Christmas. Oh, good. Fantastic book, fantastic movie. That's why it's my number two. That's another book. It's been on my Audible thing for forever. And then it's also on all the free library stuff. So I was like, oh, I'll wait for it on a library. I've been waiting for like three years on a library because it's like n- only 90 more months until you get this one. So I'm going to have to like uh, reserve <laughs> it at this point or I just, you know, spend money and buy it on Audible. But you're also right about the fact that the genre could be hopeless. I mean, you could stare into oblivion, like whether it's, you know, Alien and Ridley right. Scott films or this year's High Life, I would say, is a tough watch. I mean, there's been a couple of sci-fi films on Netflix, but to High Life's a tough watch. It's not, you know, on that level. And of course, you know, the, the genre was made super duper popular by Stanley Kubrick. And that is by no means, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, an overly optimistic film, you know, with 2001 there. So, uh, yeah, right. to- totally yeah. agree. I mean, it's a breath of fresh air in the genre. Yeah. And I mean, coming, you know, from my number three, which was Black Klansman, which is, you know, um, you know, it's it's poppy mm-hmm. and fun, but that is very heavy. I think The Martian is really just a very nice and pleasant film. And I could see myself watching this when I need to pick me up. I would uh, rather watch your list consecutively. You have a good <laughs> flow. It's like a good playlist right now. Oh, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I definitely have to check out a lot of the ones and rewatch the ones that um, I haven't seen for a while on your list. So um, I there may be a like Mike from Mike Mike and Oscar's <laughs> movie marathon in my future. Well, well <laughs> I, I would be wary of that because my list is like some doom and gloom shit. I, you might want to just like one at a time and then get like therapy in between each watch. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> so uh, ending your doom and gloom list, what is your number one best Academy Award nominated film from the 2010s. I think there's a choir on film Twitter that have been chanting this for a while, but I I have to agree with them. It's the social network for me. I need to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun and they lead to a better life. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles? I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. Site got 2,200 hits within two hours? Thousand. 22,000. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? You stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook. I know what it said. So did we. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster than any of us ever imagined it would behind. Let's sue him in federal court. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write as a check. If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd invented Facebook. Is there anything that you need to tell me? Your actions could have permanently destroyed everything I've been working on. We have been working on Did you like being a joke? Do you want to go back to that? Mark! This is our time. You're being accused of intentionally breaching security violating copyrights, violating individual privacy. Your best friend is suing you for $600 million. As for the charges, I believe I deserve some recognition from this board. Uh, I'm sorry? Yes. I don't understand. Which part?
I had just uh, graduated college when, when this movie came out, and I studied this like crazy. I saw it a couple times in theaters. Uh, as Mike once likes to say, it's his best picture of 2010. Like he doesn't even believe that the King's Speech won, and I liked the King's Speech. I didn't think it was a bad film. Yeah. I just that this to me was superior, and the King's Speech is always judged against that. The, the, the score, I mean, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, the, the score makes this movie. It's such a bizarre choice to have just, I, I can't, I, I can't even describe it, but it sounds like Radiohead to college campuses. And I had <laughs> a Radiohead phase while I was walking around my college campus. So it re I related to it, but talk about doom and gloom. I mean, this movie prophesied over this past decade. I mean, to me, if one movie is going to define what actually went down in the 2010s, yeah, the social network, or you know, or however you you characterize the film, this movie was the, perhaps the most prophetic. And then you, you get into the fact that David Fincher is one of the best directors alive. I watch Zodiac every year. You get into the fact that uh, it's one of the better screenplays. There's no. You know, there's, there's, it's no accident that I have two Aaron Sorkin screenplays on this. I was a West Wing, you know, nut growing up, watched every episode, binged watched it as an adult. You know, Aaron Sorkin's my guy forever. I, I just think this is one of those rare, you know, films that is both addictive and yet it packs a wallop. It packs a punch. And that's not always the case. Sometimes the addictive movie you just kind of like to live in, right? But yeah. uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I would say, is is this as well. But it, it, this floors you, it gives you goosebumps, and it also it, it hits you emotionally, and then you want to watch it a million times and, and basically pine over the fate of humanity. So I probably should watch your list after, you know, <laughs> could, even considering watching my list again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really wanted to put this on. This is definitely on my honorable mentions list. And the uh, again, the only reason that it's probably not is because I don't think I've seen this since it came out in theaters. Mm. I'm really bad at rewatching movies, and maybe that's maybe maybe I shouldn't be so like negative on myself for that. But I just tend to um, not have the time to watch uh, rewatch a whole bunch of movies. So this is oh, another one that I, you know, if I had done my homework and been a good podcast host, I would have rewatched this in the last week or two. From what I remember, just. I even as a kid, I mean, I was pretty young in 2010 and I loved it as a kid. Mm. And I distinctly remember talking to my mom about it, um, that we had seen it together. And I was like, the the story in this film is so good. And what's crazy is that it's all true. And of course, that was before knowing that a lot of biopics are, you know, they stretch the truth a little bit. So my right. mom was a little dubious. But yeah, like you said, if if there's a film from the Oscars to kind of emblemize the year this is definitely it and the wild thing about it at the time zuckerberg was characterizing it as just like a hit piece right and yeah. it was all you know something that was perhaps just exaggerated right at the time yeah. <laughs> 2011 it was a big thing there was a backlash it was all this stuff happening right. really during those oscars and look at the shit that's went down since then, <laughs> especially involving this guy. I mean, he's been he, he's done a lot for humanity, but oh my god, some of his flaws have have you know factored through to his business, and it's it's it really is, uh, and it's an intense watch, and it really is prophetic. 
Yeah. So do you think that that controversy is part of the reason why it didn't win Best Picture? I mean, this is way before I knew anything about Oscar races or anything like that. So do you know why this didn't win Best Picture? Because it seems like it was an easy front runner, I, um, from what I know. So what I've noticed about Best Picture races over the last 15 years, but it's really ever, you know, you go back to driving Miss Daisy winning over some quote-unquote newer, edgier titles. I mean, this was an innovative film. And Mm. the last few years, we've had innovative films, and we've had like a a group of them, in my opinion. Like 2017, to me, we had Get Out and Lady Bird, and and I think Phantom Thread that same year, and then The Shape of Water wins. It's a compromised candidate, The Shape of Water, in my opinion, because the other three films are on a, a tier or two above it. Last year, you had Black Klansman, you had The Favorite, you had a couple movies that I would say, no doubt about it, at least one or two tiers above Green Book. But Green Book, The King's Speech, all the uh, Shape of Water, in my opinion, even though that's a little more edgier than than most, they do things well, so well in a conventional sense. They deliver the movie yeah. goods that the industry is requiring, right? That they're just in, in all their studio meetings that they're dying for. And when you hit all the conventional notes and you do them all well and it's a smooth composition, typically the smoother composition wins. What is that smooth composition this year? I haven't pinpointed it yet. I mean, the two popes is kind of like that, but I don't. I don't think uh, oh, it's going to have that momentum. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit and Joker have been said, but I, J- Joker, there's no way the old people are going for that one. Even though the Joker is probably going to win the Globe, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Oh yeah, that's a good call. I, it's going to be a hell of a race coming up, but I, I, I think that's why. I think you get the conventional film beating the uh, the outlier, the innovator. Okay. So Mike, your number one film of the last decade is The Social Network all the way from 2010. Yeah. So my number one film, I'm going to be very on brand and be probably a little disappointing. Uh, My number one film is from 2016, La La Land. How are you going to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist? You're holding on to the past, but jazz is about the future. Maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. It's like a pipe dream. This is the dream. It's conflict and it's compromise. And it's very, very exciting. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to go the other one. You sure? You don't want to switch last second? Oh, wait. Okay. Did I say La La Land? I mean, did, did, I meant Moonlight crap. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit that um, some of our, our topics or our, our choices are very uh, cliche. And La La Land is, is definitely a cliche choice for me. But I just love this film so much. It is pure cinematic bliss. It is so enjoyable. And it is obviously an Oscar Beatty film, you know, Oscars obviously love inside baseball films and La La Land is about basically, you know, just whacking off to Hollywood. Yeah. 
But if we're going to get an Oscar bait film like this, then it might as well be damn entertaining. The music is fantastic. I mean, I started writing notes about this film just a couple days ago, and I've had the songs just stuck in my head just from thinking (laughs) about the film. Man, I just, I really love this film. I don't know about you, Mike. So I love it as well. It was like second on on that year for me. I I love, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I love the ending. I love the writing. I'm a huge Damien Chazelle fan. When I actually mentioned this project for, to friends, they were like, how do you not have La La Land on there? I mean, everybody I mentioned to, I I mentioned it to three people today and they're like, you don't have La La Land. (laughs) And I I was like, cause they know I love it and they know I love Chazelle after last year. Uh, So I I totally agree with you. I I think, uh, I think the music is addictive. And I just totally go in for it. Mike makes fun of me because it's like a you know white guy inventing jazz movie, which is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a funny joke. But I mean, the production values. I mean, talk about the cinema heads have to love this movie. The, the production design, the cinematography just drives you wild. I mean, it is gorgeous. And I, I shouldn't be a man who uses that word. It is gorgeous it's, <laughs> from start to finish. And then you have great performances and Emma Stone has never been like more charming and, and funny. And there's a, there's a few f- scenes early in the movie that I, I, it takes you a little bit to get used to, especially with, uh, yeah. you know, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, Gosling. How do I forget him? Ryan Gosling's a little awkward in one scene, and then Emma Stone's a little goofy in the next, and you're just not used to the tone yet. But one, the, the movie just totally you know, sweeps you off your feet and then blows you away at the end. But I always remember that movie where you walk out of in like a fog or a haze. This was that movie for me yeah, that year. Same. Like You walk out of this one, and you're just like overwhelmed. You don't know where you are. It, it takes you a while to get your car started. Hopefully you don't have a long drive home. I was blown away by that one. Yeah, it's it's one of those films that when you leave it, you're just like bubbly or or warm. It's like uh, after you've had a glass of wine or something and you're kind of just feeling it, right? Uh, this film just makes you happy. And that, that thing that you'd mentioned about it at the beginning that it takes a little while to get going, for me, um, the opening number where it's just a friggin' musical on oh. the LA highway, that's... Chazelle just telling you, buckle up, this is a musical, and it is 100% a musical. It's not this half-ass musical. We are fully doing musical numbers and breaking, sort of breaking the fourth wall with some mm-hmm. of these set designs and just, yeah, I, I really like this the commitment to making this like an old-fashioned musical, and I, I think it just works perfectly. And it is the only film on either of our lists that was technically best picture for at least a couple seconds. <laughs> That's so, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. We are uh, not Oscar apologists over here, unfortunately. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, this it's probably not the most important film of that year. I, I think Moonlight is definitely mm. a film that will be remembered for a very long time. But I unequivocally love La La Land. So that's why it is my number one film. So Moonlight's a tier one film. That was one of the cool years where, all right, an indie film, a small yeah, budget film. It. Just, you can't argue with Moonlight over La La Land at the end of the day. If you're a film lover, if you're a cinema lover, if you just want to celebrate movies, which is what Mike and I like have as our top priority on Mike, Mike and Oscar. We just love to love movies. And those two going at it, I'm, that's my dream scenario. Let me get a year <laughs> yeah. where two great films and we don't have that stinker. We don't have that. No offense, Joker, but Joker's not a tier one movie. If Joker's involved in this year's best picture race, I'm going to freak. 
I'm just going to totally freak. I don't want it there. So give me like two movies like this, just two beautiful movies, and I'll be surprised and happy no matter what. I mean, I'm just delighted no matter what. Um, but it, yeah, I, I think uh, La La Land's a rare film that it wows you in the end. And it, and it also is it, just, again, it's uh, addictive to listen to, never mind watch. I mean, that, that soundtrack was something that played. My God, dude, we are so white, by the way. We are so yeah. white. Yep. <laughs> in most of these choices. Uh, I knew we were going to be white and we were going to be male, but uh, that's who we are. I think at the end of the day, these lists were honest, right? I mean, we just yeah. have to be who we are. Yeah. And I am pretty proud of both of our lists. I think we hit some really great <laughs> films and it was a really good um, representation of what the last decade had. And God, a decade is so long. It's crazy to think about some of these films. Insane. Yeah. So before we jump into honorable mentions briefly and do our closing, why don't you just give your uh, top five in descending order, Mike? Okay. So number five was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm a huge fan Listen to our Tarantino rewatch series. It's like 15 episodes, and we did a double episode wow. on that one. The favorite was my four. Moneyball was my three. My number two was Phantom Thread. It was a little bit of a crazier pick, but I stand by it. I was obsessed with that one. And my number one was The Social Network, which is an iconic film. But I, I think you're a film, when we look, look at the uh, 2010s, like in terms of iconography, I meant to make that point earlier. Just absolutely, we're going to remember the 2010s for La La Land and the social network. That makes so much sense. Good list. Yeah, great. So uh, just again, my number five was Life of Pi. Pretty unorthodox choice, I'd say. Number four was Black Swan from 2010. Number three, Black Klansman from 2018. Number two, The Martian from 2015. And number one was La La Land from 2016. Awesome. So uh, I had, like I said, I had like 30 films that I wanted to talk about, um, <laughs> but I ended up just briefly giving a couple honorable mentions, one from each of the years um, that I wanted to shout out. And we talked about a couple of them because some of them are, are on your list, but I'll just go through mine really quickly mm -hmm. here. And then if you have any honorable mentions, we'll, we'll do that for you too. So my 2019 film, and I was really hesitant to not put this one on here. And the only reason I didn't is because... I didn't want to look like a fool just in case it wasn't going to be, you know, a best picture nominated film, but my, um, I really wanted to give some, a shout out to Parasite. Nice. That is a film that transcends, um, language in a way that many films do not. And even something like Roma did not for me personally. So Parasite, great. Um, Black Panther from 2018. Yep. Uh, I thought that was, you know, that's just going to be a sign of things that uh, things are changing. So um, I really like that film as a uh, Best Picture nominated film. Awesome. Did you want to say something about Parasite? Parasite was my uh, best original screenplay of this year so far. Uh, I don't know if it'll get beat out. Uh, and then Black Panther was Mike One's, one of his top films last year uh, or two years ago. Oh, my God. My brain's stopped working at the end of our show today. But <laughs> yeah, two great picks. Agreed. Oh, wow. I guess I just completely skipped last year. Oh, well. Whatever. That year, whatever. Um, I would put the favorite as my shout out. Wow. Oh, I think uh I think Black Panther was last year. Oh my oh, god. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. It is. Yeah. 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 Um, so then also Get Out, Arrival, Spotlight, The Imitation Game, Dallas Buyers Club, Argo, Moneyball, and the Social Network are all just ones that I absolutely love. And if this was a list of fifteen, they all would have made it. Yeah. 
I had a bunch of A movies as well. I had La La Land. I had The Martian on there. I had Parasite. I had Moonlight. I had Get Out, Toy Story 3, Zero Dark 30 was one that I was obsessed with at the beginning of the decade. Lady Bird. I watched Lady Bird a million times. Yeah. The guiltiest pleasure of these is Silver Linings Playbook. I mean, that is just me being white and Interesting. You know, a red-blooded man looking at Jennifer Lawrence and <laughs> just saying, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll watch you do it anything. But she's great in that movie. And Robert De Niro's performance in that movie is hilarious. And then the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, that's like my out-of-the-box out pick because oh, nice. I love Wes Anderson. And I, I that was a strange movie, but it really made me laugh hard. And then it, it packs a wallop at the end, too. So a lot of movies. You could, I mean, like we said, we, we picked from 30. And this was a gush, gush fest Today, I, you know, I definitely, I think, you know, both our podcasts are more balanced having listened to yours a bunch. And, <laughs> but this was a gush fest. I kind of needed this because we're about to talk about all the snubs of the Golden Globe. So ah. this was perfect timing. Great. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, I will say also that the Grand Budapest Hotel was my number three comedy of the 2010s. Excellent. Also really love that one. All right. This has been our Decade Marathon episode on the best, best picture films from the 2010s. Mike, thank you so much for coming on to this tiny little podcast and helping me out with this topic. I think, like I said before, your podcast is one of the best out there as far as Oscar content is concerned. So it means a lot that I was able to sit down with you and talk about you know, all these films that we both love. Thank you so much for that. Oh, it means the world to me to hear you say all that. Uh, I love your show as well. I've been listening and uh, I really appreciate it. I jumped at the chance of coming on. I mean, we kind of connected on film Twitter. Go figure. Everybody talks about film Twitter being a place where it's all, you know, snark and all this. So we connected on film Twitter a while back and retweeting and cross marketing. I really appreciate you guys being friendly to us there. And and then, yeah, I mean, you reached out. It's like, definitely, I totally go on your show and that's because uh, I really like your stuff and keep running those marathons, man, <laughs> metaphorically, you know, literally, uh, they're, yeah. they're good for you. And I, I probably should, you know, take a page out of that book myself, but I, uh, I really appreciate this. Yeah. Thank you so much for the kind words. It, it definitely means a lot to me as well. Um, and I've had pretty much nothing but good, you know, interactions on film Twitter. So, so yeah, far totally. so good. Um, but yeah, if you are even remotely interested in the Oscars race, definitely listen to Mike, Mike and Oscars podcast. Mike, is there anything that you want to plug specifically? Well, we're going to have our category reviews coming up when we finish our, uh, you know, uh, movie reviews. We call them Oscar Sprint Profiles of all of the uh, Oscar. That's what the S stands for. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and we do two weekly news and variety shows a week. So if you're not in for a movie review, we do like uh, an award centric show called Oscar Race Checkpoint. And then we do Mike, Mike and Oscar Weekly, which is like everything else, like all the MCU and Star, War, or Star Wars and all the franchises and all the movies that Martin Scorsese doesn't like. But we do. So we just <laughs> love to love all the movies. And I like a theme park just as much as I like a, a great movie as well. So I, I think uh, I think we, we love The Irishman and we love the Martin Scorsese movie, but we, we, we cover all kinds of movies. We did a Halloween rewatch last year with all the, those slasher films. That was like the our mountaintop. That was like the best work we probably ever did. And it was the kookiest shit in the world that we review, we're reviewing. I mean, the weirdest stuff. So we, we, we're trying to be versatile. We're trying to review everything we can. And uh, we're just trying to pump them out as much content as we can physically do. We don't have social lives. So this is all we do pretty much <laughs> is podcast and watch movies. So uh, that's why you get so much stuff from us. But uh, uh, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So is there a film that you're looking forward to most for the rest of the year? 
most people have been saying uh, Star Wars, but I, figure I'd ask. Yeah, it is Star Wars, but I, I think Mike One's answer would be weathering with you. He cannot wait to huh. see that G Kids anime film. I mean, he, he was talking, gushing over it. I think in the uh, MMOW a while back when we were reviewing a trailer, maybe it was an Oscar race checkpoint. But uh, for me, I'm really excited to see Richard Jewell this week. But for me, it's actually Little Women because I yeah. just read the book. I just watched 1994's movie. I'm going on another show to talk about that in a few days. It'll probably come out in a few weeks. I loved Lady Bird so much. And I'm shocked to say this because I have had no attachment to the pro, you know, to the property before this. But I'm into the story. It's such a good-hearted uh, story. So I'm, I can't wait to see what Greta Gerwig does with it. I can't wait. Yeah, I've, I haven't read the book at all or anything, but that is definitely the one that I am looking forward to most that I haven't seen yet that isn't Star Wars. So. Yeah, good. <laughs> good pick. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time when we continue running through the best of the decade with the guys from the Netflix and Swill podcast who will be joining me to discuss the top five Netflix films of the decade. So plenty of great content to come. Until then, bye. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.